You are about to listen to Limiting Beliefs, Part 4 of The Lost Art of Teshuvah. All of the schmoozin' as well as many series that deal with real-life issues are available on theschmooze.com or on the Schmooze app available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol HaLashon, 718-906-6461. Moshe Rabbeinu turns to the Jewish nation and he says, Ma'ashem Sholmimcha, what is Hashem asking from you except to fear Hashem, to go in His ways, to love Him, to serve Him with all of your heart and all of your soul. The Mesil Sasharim in his introduction explains that this is actually an inventory of all of the aspects of perfection of the human. If you were to take a complete listing of every element of perfect actions, perfect beliefs, and perfect behaviors, this would be an inventory of those things. And the Mishra Sharm explains to us, what does Yira Shamayim mean? And what it means in simple terms is to be constantly aware of Hashem's presence, to be ever cognizant that Hashem is with me as I get up in the morning, as I go to sleep at night, as I walk through the busyness of my day, knowing and being fully aware that Hashem is right there, present with me. When I'm dominating, that I'm literally having a conversation right there with my Creator. That's the concept of Yerushalayim. The concept of loving Hashem is eliminating any other interest, any other agenda, being absolutely, totally devoted towards service Hashem, to the extent that that's the only driving force in my entire personality. Laleches bedurachav, to go in the ways of Hashem, means to perfect one's midos. Meaning to say that a person has eliminated all vestige of jealousy, without a tinge of anger, the most humble, caring, giving human being you could imagine. And after listing each of these, Moshe Rabbeinu says to the Klaistral, this is what Hashem asks from you, this is what Hashem wants from you. But the interesting part about this is that not only does this sound rather difficult to demand from an entire nation, Moshe Rabbeinu says it in a very unusual way. He says, Ma Hashem Sholmimcha, what is the great thing that Hashem is asking from you? Meaning to say, it's not such a gargantuan task. What is the great request that Hashem has from you? And the Gemara is bothered by the problem with the Pasuk, that it seems to be exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu says it isn't. It seems to be something that's beyond our ability, something that's so tremendous, something that's so beyond any human being's capacity, that it doesn't seem to be an appropriate request at all. And especially to say it in the terms of, Ma Hashem Mimcha, what is Hashem asking from you, as if to imply that it's not such a major request, when the reality is that it is a major, extraordinary request. And the Gemara answers this question by saying, in, yes, Lemosha, and to Moshe Rabbeinu, it was a small thing. Meaning, granted, to any other human being, it would be an astonishing accomplishment. To any other occupant on the planet, it would be the greatest accomplishment in their entire existence. And as a matter of fact, no other human being really reached that level. Throughout the history of humanity, there's not a single human being with the exception of Moshe Rabbeinu who reached this level of perfection. However, once Moshe Rabbeinu acquired these traits, once he reached these levels, they were his, he owned them, and with that understanding, he turned to the Kaisal and said, it's not that great of a deal, I accomplished it, I did it. And he said in an expression, what is Hashem asking from you? Because the Gemara explains to Moshe Rabbeinu, having had acquired it, these were not such great lofty heights, and therefore he said this expression to the Klai The problem with this Gemara should be rather obvious, and that is the mark of a good teacher is understanding his audience and being able to speak in their language, in their terms, the concepts that he wants to convey. It's irrelevant to us if to Moshe Rabbeinu this was a small item, to every other human being this was a major gargantuan task. To every other person in the world, this is something that's almost unimaginable. 
So if Moshe Rabbeinu is addressing the Jewish nation, why is he using himself as a frame of reference when quite the opposite? He knows he's speaking to regular people. He knows he's speaking to people to whom fearing Hashem, loving Hashem, perfecting their midos is something that they probably can't even actually conceive of accomplishing. So not only does he charge them with that, but he says it's not such a big deal. The problem is that may be true for Moshe, but he's speaking to other people to whom it is a great deal, and it doesn't seem to be the appropriate message, the appropriate expression to use. And the question is, what does this Gemara mean, and what in fact did Moshe Beno mean when he said this? And to answer this, I think what we need is a slightly different perspective on the capacity of a human, and what oftentimes holds us back. In certain parts of the world, the Elephant is still the beast of choice for modern working situations. In parts of India, the elephant is still used for logging, for carrying very large, heavy trees through the underbrush. It's used as a beast of burden. The amazing thing about the elephant is that it is a mighty, powerful beast. It'll work all day long in the undergrowth of the forest, logging trees that weigh thousands of pounds, and yet at night, its master will tie it to a small peg in the ground. And its master will tie this mighty beast to a small peg in the ground with a rope that's not that strong. And interestingly enough, the elephant will spend the entire night there tied to that peg, incapable of escaping. The irony of the situation is that the elephant might weigh 14,000 pounds. It's a beast that can lift up a 4,000-pound tree trunk easily, and carry it throughout the entire forest. But yet it cannot escape this thin rope that holds it to the small peg in the ground. The problem with that is it easily can. It could easily escape it, and yet the reality is it can't. And the reason is because in that part of the world, when the elephant is born, one of the first things that the trainer will do is tie the baby elephant to a small peg in the ground with a rope that's not that strong. But when the elephant is born, it weighs some 250 pounds. And at that weight, with that strength, it is incapable of breaking that rope. The peg in the ground will hold it. From that day forward, every day of its life, the elephant is tied to a peg in the ground by a rope. And from that day on, it has learned the lesson that it cannot break that rope. And the reality is that with ease, it could escape, but it can't because it's tied to that understanding and its understanding of the world, it can't escape it, and that thin rope manages to hold that mighty beast day after day throughout its existence, because it's tied to that limiting understanding that it can't escape that peg in the ground. And I believe that that's an apt mushal, an apt parable for many situations in our own lives. Most of us are tied to limiting beliefs, pegs in the ground that hold us down, certain belief systems that keep us from expanding our horizons, from reaching out for real greatness. Many, many people have this attitude. Listen, I'm not that great a person. I can't accomplish these kind of things. You expect that out of me? Well beyond my capacity. I can't be a really great person. I can't be a very wealthy individual. I can never become a true Talmud Chacham. I wish it, and I would dream about it, but it's beyond my capacity. And the reality is that there are limiting beliefs, pegs in the ground that hold us down, don't allow us to recognize our capacity and stop us from reaching our potential. Every once in a while, you come across a certain situation, a certain event that shatters these limiting beliefs, and you recognize that all along we've been duped We've been fooled, and it's only our belief system that kept us down. As an example, in 1997 in Tallahassee, Florida, a young boy was involved in an accident and ended up being pinned under the wheel of a car. Rescuers couldn't help him. He was trapped. An onlooker, seeing the danger, rushed over and, almost without thinking, reached for the fender of the car and lifted it off the ground, freed the boy something that's an amazing feat of strength. The interesting part of the story is that the hero, the one who lifted the car, 
wasn't a trained emergency professional, not some big burly firefighter. The person who lifted the car was the boy's 63-year-old grandmother who had never lifted anything heavier than a bag of dog food before in her life. Now this story became a media sensation. And Dr. Charles Garfield, the author of a book of fantastic sports feats entitled Peak Performance, decided that he wanted an interviewer. He had to speak to this woman to understand how it was possible that a 63-year-old grandmother could lift a car up. So he arranged an interview, and she refused. He called, and she would not return his calls. And it became quickly apparent that she was not interested in speaking about the event. Dr. Garfield, being a persevering fellow, <clears throat> kept up, and finally she agreed to an interview. He sat down, discussed the whole event with her, and what's amazing was the reason that she didn't want to discuss it was as compelling <clears throat> as the fact that she actually accomplished this. In the course of the conversation, Dr. Garfield asked her, why is it that you're so reluctant to speak about this event? Why didn't you return my calls? And these were her words. If I was able to do this when I didn't think it was possible, what does that say about the rest of my life? Have I wasted it? What she understood with that one act was that it shattered her understanding of her capacity. If I, a woman of 63 years of age, a grandmother, could lift a car up, what that means is physically I'm capable of worlds more than what I thought I could, If that shatters my belief in my physical limitations, what does it say about my limitations as a human being? Maybe I've wasted my entire life. Interestingly enough, Dr. Garfield, who was a personal coach, began speaking to the woman further and asked her, well, what is it that you would wish to accomplish? What are your great goals? She explained that she had never got beyond a high school education. And with Dr. Garfield's coaching, she went on to finish her college degree and she went on to teach college-level Science. Mrs. Laura Schultz finished her career as a college-level instructor. This is an interesting example of a shattering belief. Some single event that shatters an understanding, that removes that peg in the ground, that breaks the rope, and lets us understand the potential that a person has, and lets us understand that it's way beyond anything that we typically think of, anything that we typically relate to. And this is a tremendous revelation in terms of understanding the human's capacity and understanding ourselves. I believe that that's exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to relay to the client's role. You see, what he was saying was, in your mind's eye, this is beyond, beyond anything that's possible. But I want you to understand that to a human being, it is possible Says Moshe Rabbeinu to the client's soul, I am a human being as you are. I breathe the same air. I have blood in my veins as you do. And yet I'm standing in a perspective. I'm standing in a place that to me this is not such a great thing. It may well be true that for us it is a tremendous accomplishment. It may well be that to us it's something we'll never reach. But understanding that there was once a human being to whom it was not such a great feat. There was once a human being who actually accomplished this, did it, and was able to say the words, it wasn't that difficult, is a shattering of limitations, a major breakthrough that opens up our understanding of what a human being is capable of doing. What Moshe Rabbeinu was doing was changing the vantage point. He was shattering these limiting beliefs, saying this is what a human being is capable of doing. If a human being makes every right choice in their life, If a human being says from this point forward, I will only do that which is correct, right, and proper, it is possible and it's easy for him to reach utter, complete perfection. Haraya says, Moshe Rabbeinu, I did it. I've done it. You can do it too. And even if it's true that we may not reach the same level, we may never reach that madrega, just seeing that there was once a human being who did exactly that and was able to say the words, it's not not that difficult, shatters our limiting beliefs and lets us understand the true capacity of a human being. And this concept is something that's very, very applicable and very, very eye-opening. Every human being has an inner understanding of that which is right and that which is wrong. 
within me is a very clear understanding of exactly what I was put on the planet for. There is a built-in GPS into every single person's soul. As a matter of fact, the neshama, that part of I, which comes from under the Kisya Kavod, knows exactly why I'm here. Many a time I heard my Rebbe, Shiva Zatzal, say that if you ever reach a moral dilemma, if you're ever in a situation where you don't know what to do, obviously you try to be Shol Eitzi, you try to ask. But there will be times when you won't be able to ask someone. There will be times when you'll actually have to make that decision on your own. And he says every human being has the capacity to know exactly what the right thing to do is. All you have to do, says Rashiva, is ask yourself, what do I think is the right way to act? What do I think is the correct way to act in a situation? Forget your agendas, forget your interests, forget what you want. What do I think is the right way to proceed? If you ask yourself that question and ignore the static, ignore the other voices that are speaking, but, but I want, but, but, if you put them away and focus on what do I think is right, which it says, it guarantees you'll know exactly what's right, because built into each of us is that neshama, is that built-in GPS that tells us exactly what's the right thing to do. What Moshe Rabbeinu was sharing with the clients all is that if you listen to that voice, if you pay attention to it and only choose to listen to it from this moment forward, perfection is not that difficult. It's just an issue of listening, following it, and making every right choice from this moment on. And Moshe Rabbeinu standing on the pedestal, standing on that huge high mountaintop of perfection, said the words, it's not that difficult, it's not that hard, it's attainable, and that changes our entire understanding of the capacity of a human. In the introduction to Yoridea, Lachsam Sofer quotes something that's very, very powerful. He quotes over in the name of the son of the Rambam, it says as follows, Praise be he who completes his years quickly and without troubles to his soul. It sounds like the Rambam's son, Rabbi Rom, the son of Rambam, was saying that it's a good thing to die young. And if you put that into perspective, that's a very difficult concept. Every once in a while we hear about a great person who dies at a young age. And there's a tremendous amount of questions that people ask. How could it be? He was a tzaddik. She was such a good person. What Was it a punishment to the community? Is it the Mira Sadin? Lachsam Sova goes on to explain that it may be something very, very different. He explains that there is no measure in time that it requires a person to reach completion. He says it's dependent upon effort, and his words translated are, if a person's seichel stands strong and takes control over his physical nature, he will return his soul to its pure state in short order. However, if the physical takes over control of the seichel in his youth, that will bring bad to his soul. He will have to be troubled by being in this lowly world and its vanity for many years, as many as 70, sometimes even more, until he undoes the damage that he brought about. What the Chassam Sofer is saying in plain language is, that it doesn't take that long to reach perfection. Every human being was given a mission, was given a purpose in being on this planet. And what the Chassam Sofer is saying is, if you choose only to do what's right, it doesn't take that long. It doesn't take 50 years, it doesn't take 70 years, and in a few short years you can reach the other total level of perfection and have finished your mission on the planet. And when you see sometimes Sadiqim who die young, when you see a very righteous person taken early, it may well be that that's exactly what has happened. That person reached their level of perfection, they reached their madrega, and they finished their work. And then the Chassam Sofer says an amazing concept. He says, you may ask me a question then. How do you explain Sadiqim who lived to 70, 80, 90 years of age? If in fact it doesn't take that long to perfect oneself, how do you explain a tzaddik who's in his 80s? And Aksam Sofer answers, it may well be that that person has reached their level of perfection long ago. For their own sake, they would have been taken out of the world, they've done their job. However, for the sake of their family, for the sake of their students, for the sake of the generation in which they live, they're there to help, to aid the rest of those people. 
So for the tzaddik himself, it's also a zchus in the sense that he's helping other people, but his job may well be done. He's there for other people. And this concept is life-changing and very radically different than the way we typically think. And what Chassam Sofer is saying is that if a human being makes every right choice, it doesn't take that long. Why does it take the average person 70, 80, maybe 90 years? Because what we end up doing is we take one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one step back, and we end up spinning our wheels for a lot of time. We end up spending a lot of time retracing our steps, going back, going forward, going left and right, and end up not much advanced from where we began. And I think that this concept is very, very applicable to think about on Yom Kippur. As you stand there in shul on Yom Kippur, one of the serious, serious questions that a Jew must ask himself is, how am I doing? Where am I at? And one of the measuring rods to determine the answer to that question is to ask myself, where am I now compared to last Yom Kippur? I spent an entire year on this planet. Am I a better person? Am I a bigger person? Am I more kindly, more giving, more concerned? Have I grown in learning? Have I grown substantially in Yerushalayim? Is my davening different? Is my amuna different? Is my bitochen different? Am I a markedly different person this Yom Kippur than I was last Yom Kippur? And if the answer is no, if I can't say that I'm substantially different, then the question is, what did I do with this year? I'm a year older, but if I'm no greater, no bigger, then what did I do with this year? And that is a very, very powerful question to ask. And the answer is very applicable. Because at the end of the day, there are only so many Yom Kippers that we have on the planet. There are only so many times that we'll stand there, there are only so many decades that we live, and then it's over. And whatever level of perfection I reach, that's me for eternity. Whatever level I reach, that's me, and I'm there exactly as I made myself, exactly as I created myself, that's where I am forever. And when you understand that, dwell upon that, think upon that, it's a very, very telling question. But then when you think about the next step, and that is, what is my capacity? What is my ability? If I were to fully put it myself into motion, if I put all burners on on, fully push the pedal to the metal, what could I accomplish? Is this all that there is? Is this as good as it gets? And when you think about the many limiting beliefs that keep us chained to those small pegs in the ground, what you understand is that we are holding ourselves back. When you understand that Moshe Meno turns to the Kalei and says, all you have to do is follow that inner instinct. Listen to that voice inside. You know exactly what's right. You know exactly what to do. You have all of the ammunition. You have all of the capacity needed. Just go out there and make the right choices. You'll grow, you'll accomplish. When you read about a grandmother lifting up the fender of a car, what you recognize is the vast majority of the human race are functioning well below their capacity. And more significantly, am I reaching my level? What level of my capacity am I functioning on? Is it 80%? If it's 80%, that's fantastic. That's phenomenal. But if you're critically honest with yourself, you may find that in many areas it's not 80%. It may be 60, it may be 40, it may be 20%. And one of the most critical questions a human being must ask themselves on Yom Kippur is, what can I do to change that? What can I do to make a difference in my world, to make a difference in my life? And if a person stands there in shul, thinks about that issue, lays concrete plans to change, they can change their future, they can change their destiny. It's a very funny thing about growth. If you find yourself in shul on Yom Kippur, and you make a major life decision. This is the area I'm going to focus on. This is the issue I'm going to deal with. And you lay concrete plans how to do that. If you actually succeed in doing it, a very strange thing happens. You become a bigger person. You become a greater person. And that person standing there on the next Yom Kippur aspires for even more. 
and you'll make new plans, lay new <coughs> strategies, and you'll become greater. The next Yom Kippur, you'll have an aspiration for greater and greater. You began a trajectory of growth, and you end up growing level after level, and you leave this earth as a giant of a human being. The other choice is the whatever. Whatever means whatever. Listen, Rabbi, what could you expect from me? It's a rough generation. You know, it's a tough time. You know, I didn't have the best yeshiva education. And I, you know, you have to understand whatever. The whatever generation, which is what's sold in the media, what's sold in society at large, is the greatest limiting belief that holds a human being down, tied to the ground. The great concept that every Jew must understand is that Hashem did not create a single human being for mediocrity. Hashem did not take a neshama from under the Kisya covered and put us in this world for whatever. You know, whatever, I'm doing what everybody else is doing. I'm sort of hanging out, so, you know, I'm, I'm alright, I'm not so bad. Every Jew, every human being has an innate capacity for greatness, for tremendous accomplishments. That doesn't mean to make all the money in the world. It doesn't mean to be a captain of industry. It means to perfect myself, to help those around me, to change the very world I live in, and ultimately to reach the level of perfection for which Hashem put me on the planet. But that's an innate capacity in the human, and the single greatest obstacle to reaching that potential are the limiting beliefs, how much can I grow, how much can I accomplish, it's beyond my ability. Moshe Rabbeinu is laying for us a very clear message. And that is the greatness of the human is not that difficult. Within you is every ingredient needed. Within you is that voice that tells you what to choose, how to choose, when to choose it. Listen to that voice, follow it, and it won't take that long. The Chassam Sof is telling us <clears throat> the human being follows that course. It doesn't take 70 years to reach perfection. It takes but a few years if a person makes all the right choices Level after level they grow, level after level they become a very different human being. On Yom Kippur, there are two avodas. A very serious part of our avoda is to look at our actions on a small scale, to take each action, dissect it, ask myself what I did right, what I did wrong, what area I can improve in. But there's another area of the avoda on Yom Kippur that I believe is equally important. And that is to ask the major, big deal life questions. Am I happy with me? Am I fulfilling my purpose in existence? Is this what it's all about? Am I living my life in sync with what I understand my purpose in the world to be? And if you ever get that sense, but how could I really know what I'm here for? How could I ever really know my mission? The answer is, if you close your eyes and are critically honest with yourself, you'll know exactly what you're here for. And if you begin the path of following that, you'll grow level after level. However, the great obstacle in the human being, number one is limiting beliefs, and number two is a blindness to ourselves. And I'll share with you a very interesting example of that. I've been saying the Shmuz now for about six years or so, Torah began about six years ago along with the Shmuz. And I'll tell you the truth. I love my job. My job is something that I enjoy giving the Shmuz, talking to people afterwards. It's something that I fundamentally enjoy and is a very beautiful experience for me. However, it used to be a lot more fun than it is now. You see, when Torah began, yeshiva programs for working people, the population were young working guys. And the issues that I dealt with were the issues of young guys starting out their career in life. Guys getting married, issues of, small issues of marriage, how to get along better with my wife, my mother-in-law, whatever it was. It was a lot of fun to talk about these experiences with the guys. Well, I've kept up the Kesher relationship over the years. The Shilas have become much different. Now the issues are the divorces, the major serious problems, and the fun of it is not quite there anymore. And I'd like to share with you that when you're dealing with a couple who are on the verge of divorce or very close to it, it's a very, very interesting situation. I'll bring the couple into my office and invariably it starts with the two of them in there and I cannot hear anything. He said, she said, 
I separate them, either the woman first or the husband first, and I'll say, tell me, what's going on? And then begins the finger pointing. You know what he did? You know what he said? You know what he did? On and on a litany. I'll bring him in and hear the same thing. And then I'll take each one separately and say, ma'am, I want you to understand what I'm saying. I feel your pain. I understand that you're in a very rough situation. But I also want you to understand that I don't care. I don't care about your pain. I don't care about his pain. I care about the relationship. But but you know what he said? You know what he No, ma'am, I, I, I feel badly. But I want you to understand, I only care about the relationship. But you know what he said? I, man, I understand. But I care about the relationship. And I want to explain to you why I use that specific technique. <clears throat> you see, invariably, when you get the wife in the room or the husband in the room, <clears throat> the finger pointing, the blame, if you would hear the litany of complaints, it's unending. But there's no way to solve a problem that way. Because to the wife, <clears throat> everything is the husband's fault. To the husband, everything is the wife's fault. And it never seems to be that the human understands their guilt in the situation. And I've seen it over and over. You'll take two reasonable people, and each one will present the side. You'll think, and when you listen to him, it sounds like she's a till at a hunt, and she flies in a broom at night. And when you hear her side of the version, he's Hitler's cousin. He's the worst, heinous criminal you've ever heard. But I know the two of them. They're reasonable people. I've had a guy, one of the most scary situations I could imagine. He calls me up on the phone and he says, Rabbi, I don't understand it. She left me. She left me and she didn't even give it a try. She didn't go for counseling. How could she leave? He's crying on the phone. And I wanted to drop the phone. I had been working with that couple for two years. I brought them to two separate marriage therapists. We've been going through the entire procedure for years now. And he says, she didn't even give it a try. But worse than that, he is the most abusive human being I've ever seen in a marriage. If you would hear the expression, the words that he says to his wife, it's unbelievable. Yet from his perspective, she is the abusive one. She is the one who's causing all the trouble. And this is but one example of this interesting phenomenon called being a human being. I'm very adept, very skilled at seeing your flaws, but I'm blind as a bat, dumb as sin in terms of seeing my own issues. I can dissect exactly what you've done wrong, but when it comes to me, I don't even see it. And I believe that this is a very, very important part of growth. You see, every human being is responsible for what they do. And what that means is I am responsible for me. The problem I have is I don't see my flaws. I don't see what I do wrong. And I don't see what I do in the relationship of the marriages that I've dealt with that are either on the rocks or are over. The vast majority of them should not have been that way. The vast majority of them, they were made for each other. The couple should have succeeded. The marriage should have been saved. And if you speak to professionals in the field, you'll find the majority of marriages that end in divorce today should not have ended in divorce. Sometimes it happens and the marriage is wrong. Sometimes it happens for whatever the reason that the couple should not have been put together, but the vast majority, that's not what's happening. It's her fault, it's his fault, and the real truth is it's a combination of both of their faults. And I believe that a very important thing to think about on Yom Kippur is, what am I doing that's right? What am I doing that's wrong? And I sincerely believe that if you're in a relationship that's rocky, and I don't only mean a marriage, if you're in a marriage that has trouble, if you have problems with your sister or your brother, if you have trouble with your parents, if you have a lot of sorrows with your in-laws, or you're having trouble getting along with your children, if you're in a rocky situation, I almost guarantee that you're at least 50% at fault. I almost guarantee that you're at least half to blame. And if you'd like a major accomplishment on Yom Kippur, it's to sit and shul and think about your relationship with others and stop blaming the other person. Look at you and ask yourself, what could I do differently? What am I doing wrong? And then lay concrete plans how to change. You may save your marriage. You may actually, for the first time in your life, fulfill Kibbutz Va'im. You may change your relationship with your co-workers, your friends, your brother, your sister. But more importantly, you'll do that critical thing called growing, called changing, 
You see, during the course of the year, it's very difficult to be honest with ourselves. We're very busy, very caught up, and we're very quick to put the finger blaming the other person. Yom Kippur is a day that has a different tone to it. There's a different sense. There's a different understanding, a greater receptivity. And in shul, you're sitting there, there's a lot of time to think. One of the things that you should be thinking about is, what am I doing wrong in my relationships, in my ben adam lechavero, and what can I do to change? And that is a significant part of the avoda. But along with that comes a much bigger part of the avoda, and that is the bigger global life pictures. And that refers to exactly these issues. Am I on track? Am I doing what's right? Am I doing what's appropriate? Am I using my time right? Am I really learning as much as I can? Am I really dominating the way that I know I should be dominating? Am I really working on my midos as I should be? Am I as honest in business as I could and should be? But more than anything, am I living my life as if I understand that I should put me on a planet for a few short years and I will leave? But not only will I leave, I'll be on the level of perfection that I reached, but more than that, the whole reason I'm here is just to grow, to exercise my free will, and to understand that every situation in life is a challenge. Am I living my life in accordance with that which I fundamentally understand is the purpose of my life? And those very big deal life questions are things that escape us, that elude us during the year. And on Yom Kippur, a person can think about that, focus on that, and lay very concrete, real plans to change. And again, if you do, you change your existence, you change your destiny, you change your eternity. A person can accomplish worlds on Yom Kippur that they can't even begin to think about during the rest of the year. However, it takes breaking away, it requires focus, it requires thinking about these thoughts. And it also requires some motivation. You see, the truth is that this work is very, very difficult for me to stare in that mirror and in my mind's eye put the blame where it's due, which again is at least 50% of the time on me, for me to look in that mirror and be critically honest, am I really reaching my potential? Is this really all that I got within these tanks? That requires a tremendous amount of drive, tremendous amount of motivation, and requires a lot of guts. And I'd like to share with you what I consider to be one of the most motivating concepts that will hopefully motivate us to exactly this, to do tshuva, to reach for our potential, to understand our capacity, and to really reach up for that greatness. It's actually, it's a chazal. Chazal tell us that there are five things that happen to you against your will. Against your will you were created. Al-Korchach Nolarat, against your will you were born. Al-Korchach Atachai, against your will you live. Al-Korchach Atameis, against your will you die. Al-Korchach Ataomed Lisendin Vacheshben, and against your will, at the end of your days, you'll stand in front of Hashem and answer for judgment. And then the Medrash Tanchuma goes on to explain exactly what these phrases mean. Says the Medrash Tanchuma, that all of the neshamas that will ever be created have already been created, and they sit close to the Kisya covered, close to Hashem's throne. And Hashem calls a particular malach and says, bring me such and such neshama. The malach goes and brings that neshama in front of Hashem. Hashem says to that neshama, I'm now going to put you into the world. That neshama screams out, Hashem, please don't do this. The Neshama bows down full face into the ground, whatever that means, and says, Hashem, I'm very happy where I am. I'm close to the Kisya Kavod. I enjoy your presence. Hashem, please don't do this. Hashem says, understand this is good for you. For those who succeed, for those who reach their potential, they reach levels that are greater than the greatest celestial beings. For those who succeed, it's worth it. And then Hashem tells the Malach, put this Neshama into a particular woman's belly. The neshama comes, puts the neshama into the mother's stomach, and then the neshama sits there. The malach comes and shows that neshama from one end of the world to the other. 
the Malach first takes that neshama to Ganadin and shows that neshama certain tzaddikim, shining, brilliant lights. And the Malach asks the neshama, do you recognize that? The neshama says, no, what, what is that? Those are the tzaddikim who use their time properly. Those are the ones who follow the Torah. That's what you can be. Follow the Torah and you'll be as great as they. Listen to the words of the Torah and you'll be a shining light for eternity. Then the Malach takes the neshama to Gehenim. And there it sees the fire, Malachim pounding with fiery whips and various people, a horrible scene. And the Malach says to Neshama, do you know what that is? Says the Neshama, no, what is that? Those are those who didn't listen. Those are the ones who wasted their life. Those are the ones who turned against Hashem. Don't do that. And then the Medrash tells us that the Malach takes the Neshama to every place to the place where it's to be born, to the place where it will die. It shows the neshama one end of the world to the other. Then the malach brings the neshama back into the mother's stomach. And Hashem appoints two malachim, two angels, to make sure that the neshama isn't mapil, doesn't cause a miscarriage. Hashem puts a lock there to keep the neshama there, because the neshama doesn't want to be there. The Neshama waits nine months and the Malach comes again. And now the Malach comes and says, I'm coming to take you. Where are you taking me, says the Neshama. I'm taking you into the world. No, I'm very comfortable here. Please leave me. Don't take me. And the Malach says the words, against your will you're created. Against your will you'll be born. Against your will you will live. Against your will you will die. And against your will you will stand in front of Hashem in judgment. And the Neshama screams out, no, I'm very comfortable. Please don't put me into the world. And the Malach says, this isn't your choice. And the Neshama is put into the world. The Medjus explains, initially when the baby is born, he's like a king. Everyone loves the baby, everyone hugs him, everyone kisses him. It's a beautiful thing. The child grows. He's still uh, appreciated. As he gets older, they start putting a, a yoke of responsibility on him. Eventually he gets married, he has his own children, he begins working very, very diligently, very hard. He goes through his life, and as he reaches old age, he becomes infirmed, he becomes weak. His bodily energy leaves him, his mental acuity leaves him. He becomes an old, infirmed, sick man. His life to him is not worth living. Everything disturbs him. Everything bothers him. His capacity to accomplish, to think, to grow is almost not present. His life becomes a misery. And at that point again, the Malach comes to take him and says in the to the Malach, what are you doing here? And the Malach says, I'm coming to take you. No! No! Screams in the don't do this! Leave me be! Says the Medrash, he lets out a scream that you could hear from one end of the earth to the other. Leave me be, don't take me. And Amalek says, against your will you were born, against your will you will die. And the Neshama is taken out of the world. And I'd like to ask one penetrating question on this Medrash. It's obvious that the Neshama doesn't want to come to the world. And it's even understandable why the Neshama doesn't want to be in this world. The Neshama derives no benefit from the world. <clears throat> the Neshama explains to us like a princess, like a princess who is brought up in satin and silk, with the greatest finery, who is married to a commoner. Everything the commoner brings to the princess has no value. Anything in this world doesn't bring benefit to my soul. It doesn't fill my soul. Your fancy cars, your beautiful homes, the thick steak, it doesn't fill my soul. My neshama came from much higher. And the I who am speaking to you was once a neshama under the kisiyah covered, close to Hashem, enjoying the greatest pleasures that a celestial being can enjoy. Anything in this world is coarse, is thick, is passing. The neshama derives no pleasure, no benefit from this world. And so it should be obvious why the Neshama doesn't want Hashem to put in this world. And it should be obvious why Hashem has to put two Malachim at the mother's belly to make sure that the Neshama doesn't abort, that it doesn't leave. And it's also obvious why the Malach has to take the Neshama into the world because the Neshama doesn't want to be here. It's so thick, it's so coarse, it's so far from Hashem, so far from that which I understand to be right, proper, and beautiful. 
But here's the problem. The Neshama is in the world for 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, and then the Malach comes to take it. And then it lets out the most bitter scream, don't take me. What do you mean, don't take you? You're the one who complained you don't want to be in the world. You're the one who suffered. You're an old man now. Your physical existence is a torture. Your body is broken. Your mind is weak. Get out. You never wanted to be here to begin with. You didn't want to come into this world in the first place. And now you're able to leave. You should jump at it. Yet the Neshama lets out a scream that you could hear from one end of the earth to the other. What's Pshat? And I'd like to share with you what I believe Pshat in his Medrash is. Sheldon Adelson was a rags-to-riches story. The son of an immigrant taxi driver. He grew up in Chicago. He began his first business at the age of 12. And by the time he was in his 60s, he had owned 50 businesses. And at that stage, he had bought the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, the Venetian. He was quite successful. Forbes estimates that his net worth was $1.5 billion. But an interesting thing happened to Sheldon Adelson in 2003 and 2004. You see, he took his company public, and his wealth increased at such a rate that it's astonishing. He went from being a very wealthy man to being the fifth wealthiest man in the world. As a matter of fact, Forbes magazine estimates that during that time period, 2003 and 2004, his wealth increased at a rate of $1 million an hour. $1 million an hour. Now, to give you an illustration of what making a million dollars an hour means, imagine for a minute that your name is Sheldon Adelson. And imagine for a minute you're making a million dollars an hour. So here's the scene. You go in for a little dip in the pool, and you come out, shake off your hair, you're a million dollars richer. You sit down to the Dafayomi, you close the book, you're another million dollars richer. You sit down and take a little Shabbos schluff, you wake up three million dollars richer. Wow! To be alive every hour of my life, another million dollars. This is awesome. This is astonishing. Life is beautiful. I believe that that is a very apt and proper muscle to an interesting concept. Chazal tell us, Yofa Sha'achas Betshuva Masim Tovim Mikol It is better. One hour of tshuva, one hour of improving yourself is better than the entire world to come. And if you think about that Mishnah, if you think about that statement, it's very difficult to understand. What that Mishnah is saying is that I have more pleasure, more enjoyment in one hour of tshuva than I'll have in the entire world to come, and that's rather perplexing. Because Hashem is quite capable. God is very good at doing that which God does. I want you to imagine for a minute that Hashem were to create a world with one single purpose. The only purpose in that world that Hashem created was for you to have pleasure. Understanding that Hashem is very capable, very good at what He does, imagine Hashem made that world solely for you to have pleasure. Could you imagine the experience that it would be there? You'd be enveloped with pleasures, layers and layers, whiff upon whiff, different flavors, different nuances, never tiring, never getting bored, an unending, eternal, pleasurable experience. That world was created. Hashem made that world that's called Olam Haba, that's called the world to come. That's where we exist when we leave this current short thing that we call life. But this mission is telling us that one hour of tshuva is better than all of Olam Haba. How could that be? And I believe the pshat really is quite simple. You see, we spend so much time in the thing that we call life pushing off basic truths that we know at the core of our existence. We spend so much time squashing that voice inside and we spend so much time running away from that which we know to be true. If a person stands on a Yom Kippur and reaches that core understanding, I understand why I'm here. And then he makes a decision to change. There is a joy, there is a deep-rooted satisfaction because I know I reached my purpose in existence. I know I'm on the road to reaching that path. I know I'm changing and I know for eternity I'm accomplishing worlds. There's such a sense of peace, such a sense of harmony, such a sense of happiness when a person grows, when he changes. There is no experience in the human existence that is as pleasurable as growth. Changing me, making myself into a different person, and knowing that that change is for eternity is the most pleasurable 
experience in the world because it's like getting rich. If you speak to someone who is wealthy, who has $20 billion, if you ask him what was more fun, he'll tell you right away was the getting rich is far more fun than being rich. When you're changing, when you're growing, when you're improving, when you know that you're buying your Olam Haba in leaps and bounds, that is the most pleasurable experience in the world, even greater than being there in Olam Haba, because you know you're hitting it, you're accomplishing, you're growing, you're getting wealthy, you're reaching your world to come. I believe that's what Chazal mean when they say it is better a Shah Achas Pechuva, because I feel more pleasure Deep down within me, I feel it, I sense it, I know it. I may not be totally in tune with that feeling, but there's an inner harmony. And when I leave this existence, I recognize it completely and fully. And I believe that's exactly shot in the Medrash. You see, the Neshama was put into this world and was very, very busy. The Neshama was earning a living. The Neshama had many responsibilities and it got caught up in the world and forgot why it's here. But now as an old man, when the neshama is being taken, when the malach comes to it, at that moment the neshama wakes up and goes, Oh my goodness, you can't take me. Life is so precious. Look what I can accomplish. Even as an old man infirmed in bed, one more thought, one more hirub one more working on a munam bitachon, one more accepting Hashem's sovereignty changes me for eternity. Don't take me. At that moment, the Neshama lets out a scream that goes from one end of the earth to the other. Because at that moment, the shocking reality hits it. It understands why it's here. It understands the purpose in existence. And it doesn't want to leave. And I believe that this is a very, very powerful concept to think about on Yom Kippur. I'm not a sadist and I'm not an ill-intended person. But I'd like to give you a bracha. My bracha is that on Yom Kippur, on this Yom Kippur, you should shed many, many tears. You should cry copious tears. And why do I say that? Because when you put your talus over your head, you go into your own world and you ask yourself, is this what it's about? Am I accomplishing what I was put on the planet for? Am I really acting in my relationships as I should? Am I really acting vis-a-vis Hashem as I should? Am I really acting vis-a-vis myself as I should? You hopefully will reach an understanding that I'm not quite there yet. When you break away from those limiting beliefs that whatever, how much can I accomplish anyway? When you recognize the greatness that is contained within you and you recognize that you're falling short, hopefully you'll begin crying bitter, bitter tears. And I want you to understand that that will be the most enjoyable moment of your year. Bitter tears in your eye, but deep set joy in your heart. Because it's that moment of recognizing the truth. That moment of recognizing your purpose in existence. And that moment that you're growing, you're changing, you're experiencing the most pleasurable sensation that a human being can have. And while it be true that there are tears in your eyes, a tremendous amount of joy in your heart, And that is one of the most powerful, most beautiful experiences that a Jew can have. It is a very, very great avoda. It requires a tremendous amount of work. It requires courage. It requires determination. It requires thinking about a Moshe Rabbeinu standing at the mountaintop saying it's not such a big deal. Within you is the capacity. Within you is the innate understanding of what's right, what's wrong. Within you is that built-in GPS that will tell you go left, go right, go left, go right. Recalculating, recalculating, meaning you're going in the wrong direction. Make a U-turn. And when you hear that voice, what you have to do is listen to it. Squash your other interests. Put away your agendas. Ask yourself, what do I think is the right thing to do? And you'll know it internally, intuitively, and all you have to do is follow that voice. When you see a mammoth behemoth, 14,000 pounds tied to a little peg in the ground, and you understand limiting beliefs. Most human beings are tied to pegs in the ground. How great can I be? How much can I accomplish? Don't expect me to set real life goals. You want me to really finish shots? Come on, not me. Not really, not really knowing it. You want me to reach those levels? You want me to master Chumash even? You can't expect it. Not really dominant as if I mean it? Work on my midos as if I'm really growing and accomplishing? Come on. It's these shackles that bound us, hold us to these small pegs in the ground. Moshe Rabbeinu is breaking that for us. When you read about a Laura Schultz, a 63-year-old grandmother lifting a car, you understand the human being is capable of far more. But what you have to do is you have to break away, you have to step away, 
And Yom Kippur is a powerful tool to use. The Chassam Sofer shares with us that it doesn't take that long to perfect ourselves if we listen. If we listen to that voice inside. The problem is we take two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. We end up spending so much time going nowhere. What a Jew has to do is map my course. Look at myself. Ask myself where I'm headed. Ask myself where was I last Yom Kippur? Am I significantly bigger? If not, well let me change that now. And by laying real concrete decisions, making a concrete, a concrete strategy to go forward to change, a person changes that destiny, reaches new heights, and can accomplish worlds and worlds. I'd like to close with one last thought. <clears throat> and that is the year 2008-2009, financially for many people, was not <clears throat> such a good year. However, on the face of the planet, no human being lost as much money as did Sheldon Adelson. Forbes magazine estimates that in the years 2008 and 2009, he lost $24 billion. $24 billion is what he lost. Now, that is an awful lot of money to lose. I've never lost it. I sure hope never to lose that. But that is a fortune of money. And I believe there's a very interesting point that could be brought out from that point. We all hope Sheldon Adelson have a Rikhashomim, live a long life, regain his wealth and everything, etc. But at a certain point, he's going to leave this earth. And at a certain point, he's going to leave this earth and stand in front of the Beisdun Shamala, stand in front of Hashem. And I believe that he'll be vastly proud of certain decisions that he made. He donated $25 million to Birthright. Birthright is a program. If you're Jewish, you have a right to go to Israel. They'll pay your flight. I deal with many Bali Tshuva who tell me that a big part of the process for them was they were in college, they were at work, someone offered them a free trip, they went, and it began a process. They're now from, they've now changed their life because of that trip. It was a significant contributing factor. And I believe for eternity, Sheldon Adelson has a tremendous credit on his account. Because of him, birthright came about. Because of him, all these people grew and changed, and that is directly attributed to him. However, how do you think he's going to feel about the $24 billion that was taken from him? When he thinks in the world to come, when there's no physicality, when he's left this earth, and he recognizes that had he taken that $24 billion, he could have made a significant difference in the world. He could have accomplished tremendous amount with that. Would you like to know what $24 billion is? Take every single yeshiva, every day school, every high school, every Kirov organization, every hospital, every stucca agency you've ever heard of, and imagine giving $10 million to each and every one, and you'll still have about $4 billion left. Sheldon Adelson could have changed the very world he lived in with those $24 billion, but it's gone, it's a lost opportunity, and for eternity, he doesn't have that. And I have to imagine that's the most painful experience a human can go through. I could have, should have, would have, but didn't. And my friends, there's a powerful message to us in that. We weren't given the opportunity of spending $24 billion dollars. But every human being was given a far greater opportunity. I was given the greatest resources in the world called time, energy, capacity. Every one of us has talents. Every one of us has abilities. Every one of us has much more than $24 billion of opportunity to change myself and change my world. And the only relevant question is when I stand there at the end of my days and I'm judged by Hashem, what will I say? Will I say, wow, look how I invested my time. Look what I accomplished. Look at the worlds I created. Or will I say I wasted that opportunity, a $24 billion opportunity, and it was wasted? That understanding, if we wake up to it now, feel it now, can be the guiding force for our life. Because as long as there's breath in my lungs, blood in my veins, I can change, I can grow, I can accomplish. If I stand there on Yom Kippur, think about these thoughts, and chart my course appropriately. May Kodesh Baruch grant us the wisdom, understanding, the ability to put this into practice. You've been listening to Limiting Beliefs, Part 4 of The Lost Art of Teshuvah. 
This, as well as hundreds of other Schmooze audio, video, and articles are available on the Schmooze.com or on the Schmooze app available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol HaLashon, 718-906-6461.